Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. All right, this morning I'd like to invite you to uh, uh, turn in your Bibles or turn on your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3, we're halfway through uh, the story of the reluctant prophet who ran but could not outrun the grace of God. And uh, it's a lesson for all of us that as we run, we cannot outrun God's grace. But we'll be in Jonah chapter 3 here um, in just a second. But I wanted to start off this morning by asking, uh, are there any golfers in here, there's not a lot of golfers probably in our church. Got a couple of you. Um, you you've, you any kind of golf, you know, real golf, glow in the dark golf, putt putt golf, frisbee golf, alligator golf. I've seen games like that at the store. Okay, we're just not a golfing church or a golfing people, right? Well, that's good because I'm not a golfing preacher. Uh, I don't. I, I have not golfed probably since. Um, probably before Noel was born, so that's almost an entire decade since I've golfed. I mean, they've probably just completely changed the game. I don't know. Um, I've just never been one that's, uh, that's, that's been a golfer. I thought about bringing one of my clubs, you know, kind of like just as an illustration this morning, um, but uh, my bag is just completely non-presentable. I mean, it's moth-eaten and spiders in it and stuff like that. So, um, you know, anyway, so golf is just not something that's really big around. Anybody know about basketball here? We obviously know about football, amen? All right, anyway, I'm done with that, okay? I'll, I'll stop celebrating the, uh, uh, the, the victory yesterday. But um, if you're familiar with the game, how many of you know the game of golf? You know what it is. You've seen it on television before. Okay, golf is one of those games. It's one of those games that I just consider, it's like a backward sport. It's one of the only sports that I know of that you win because you score the least amount of points. Okay, that just doesn't make sense. That's just totally un-American because in America we got to be the biggest, the baddest, the best and have the most, right? But golf is just like backwards. You're going to win by having the least because basically what you do is you start counting your hits and you want to hit this little tiny ball across this huge field with trees and sand and, you know, all that type of stuff. This little tiny ball into this little tiny hole that's like hundreds and hundreds of yards away and you want to do it in as few shots as possible. This is why I don't play the game of golf. All right, I'm too much of a perfectionist. So because every single shot counts, if you miss a shot or you shoot a bad shot, it's going to come back to bite you. And again, we don't just score it by like, you know, you, you got a good shot. No, you get a birdie or an eagle or a bogey. Did you even know a bogey's a bad thing? Right? You want to just be par. That's the thing. The goal of golf is just to be average. You just want to be par. It's just boring to me. I don't know. I don't mean to offend anybody that's a golfer, maybe that's watching with us uh, or something. Maybe you're watching from the golf course right now on your phone. I don't know. But, uh, but anyway, golf just doesn't seem to make sense to me. But here's the thing. When I do play golf, the rare times I do play golf, I really enjoy this thing called the mulligan. All right. The mulligan is basically a do-over. So if you, you can score, and sometimes, especially when amateurs play, they decide before they begin the round, all right, we're going to take like three mulligans per, per round. And what that means is you get three do-overs in the round, and you can choose which one. So that means if I get up, and I haul off, and I shoot a drive, and I shank it over into the trees, and I hit it into the next county, and I know I'm never going to find the ball again, I can just call out mulligan, and I can take another shot. And it's like that other shot never existed. It's a do-over. It's a second chance. And for a perfectionist like me, I'll take the mulligan, but I'm still going to beat myself up for weeks over the bad shot that I took, right? 
But, but I love mulligans when I get to play the game of golf. And you can tell how good you are by how many mulligans you want to take, right? Because the good players don't have to redo their shots. They take good shots all the time. Well, several years back, I was playing with our, our children's pastor in a golf scramble for, uh, it was, was kind of like a fundraiser for a missions organization, and we were paired up with a couple of other guys from another church. We were paired up with this sweet guy. He was like 80 years old, and his name was Calvin. Calvin had never played golf. We're in for a long day, right? So we get up and, and we were playing on this really, really nice course. Right? You know, one of those courses where you got like, you know, if they're not million dollar homes, they're like really, really close to million dollar homes all along the fairway and stuff and at the tee box and at the green and stuff like that. So as the rich people are out there sipping their coffee, they can laugh at the people who miss their putts, you know, <laughs> you know, they can feel really good about themselves. And uh, so we get up and we're about the fifth hole in and Calvin gets up to tee off at the fifth hole. And he shanks this ball so bad, and it just veers off right. And, and you see it headed for this pristine house, and the whole back of the house is nothing but windows. Well, it was nothing but windows. Now it's just an empty hole because Calvin hit his ball straight through the window of this house. And we're just standing there, and I'm like, oh, man, poor Calvin. Like, what did just happen? He says two things. He looks back, and he says, was that house there the whole time? I'm like, yeah, Calvin, it's, it's, no, they just built it when you hit it, you know, it's just there. He goes, oh man, he goes, you know what, Derek, I think it's time for me to take one of those mulberries you were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so we gave him his mulberry. I don't know if he got a mulligan when the bill came in for the glass or not, but, uh, but here's the thing, wouldn't mulligans be nice in real life? Right? It's great when it's in a game that really makes no difference. Unless you're a professional golfer, you know, and your livelihood's on the line, it really doesn't make any difference if, how many mulligans I take when I play golf. But man, it would be nice to have mulligans in real life, wouldn't it? Like, think about this. In school, if you're a student in school, wouldn't it be nice if you completely bomb a test to just like, you know, you get halfway through and you just call out mulligan and the teacher's like, okay, yeah, come back in tomorrow when you're better prepared and we'll do this over again. Wouldn't it be nice? Or how about in your marriage? You've, I know you've never done this before, but you get into an argument with your spouse and you say things that you know you shouldn't have done, Right? And the words cut deep, and you wish that you could just take those back, and you want to pull them back in. Wouldn't it be nice to just call out mulligan, and your spouse says, what? I don't remember those words. What are we talking about? We'll start all over again. Wouldn't it be nice at the job if you botch a project, or you just really don't do a good job, and your boss is coming down, and you could just say, hey, I'm going to call a mulligan here today. And your boss says, you know what? We're going to, yeah, that's fine. And, and the, the, the client that you blew the presentation to calls back and says, you know what? We're going to give you a chance to just go ahead and give that whole presentation again. Wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice with God when God says, do this because this is the righteous thing. This is what's good for you. And you do the opposite that God would say, all right, I'm going to give you a do-over. Oh, wait, that one actually does happen, doesn't it? And see, that's why we worship. That's why the songs that we just sang. many times in my life with God, I've had to scream, Mulligan, Father, forgive me. And he says, I forgive you because my grace is sufficient for you. See, in real life, we don't often offer people mulligans, but God offers mulligans. And on his scorecard, he'll offer one, two, three, four, a hundred mulligans, a hundred do-overs because his grace never runs out. It only runs after us. It only runs after us. So I love the fact that my God is plenteous and liberal with his mulligans. See, while I can't go back and change the past, 
While I can't go back and erase the consequences of what I did when I messed up, God says, I will give you a chance to have a second chance. I will give you a third chance, a fourth chance, a fifth chance, a hundredth chance, because my grace doesn't run out. It only runs after you. So as we look into chapter 3 of Jonah this morning, this is what we see. We see this fact played out, not only in the person of Jonah, who's a reluctant prophet who didn't deserve grace, who didn't deserve a second chance, deserved to die in that ocean. God sets him out on the seashore with a second chance. We also see it in pagan sailors who didn't deserve the mercy of God, but God gave that to them. Now we're going to see God's second chance come to fruition in Jonah in chapter 3, but also for a nation of people who deserve Deserved not a moment of grace, but got 40 days of a second chance to turn things around. You see, and before we dive into that, I want to just kind of, if you're, if you're kind of catching up or this is your first time with us and you've missed the first half of this series, what we're trying and hoping to accomplish and praying to accomplish in this series as a church and as a body is that we want to see two things happen within us. Number one is that we want to develop collectively a greater appreciation for a God whose love pursues us even when we try to run away. I don't know about you, but somebody who chases after me, even when I run away, that's someone who's worth my worship. And then also we want to try to develop a greater love for those around us, even those who seem far from God, even those who we may think don't deserve love and grace and mercy. You know those people on Facebook that post those things that you just look at and you're like, what in the world are they thinking? Or those people who think differently politically than you? Or those people who look at you differently and say, well, you're different than me, so I don't know if I can like you? Or those people maybe who have hurt you deeply and you say, you know what, God may have grace for you, but I have zero? See, that's one of the trade-offs in the Christian life is that to be a Christian means we have to be Christ-like, which means we also have to show grace like he does. So I hope that through this series we see that we develop a greater sense of love for people who may not be exactly like us, who maybe don't deserve grace, but because of the grace that's been showed upon us, we'll give it to other people. See, because the theme of this entire book, I believe in, we can draw a lot of different things. We could preach Jonah an entire year or two years and preach it from different angles and pull out different things. But as we've been pulling on this thread of grace that runs through this entire story, here's what we've been seeing, that because of his relentless love for us, God will not give up on us even when we give up on him. God never gives up on us even when we give up on him. We've already seen that true for Jonah. We've already seen that true for uh, the sailors on the boat. But now we're going to see how it plays out for the Ninevites. You see, because in chapter 1, we see that God's call, God calls Jonah, this prophet, to go to Nineveh. And, and let me tell you this about Jonah. Jonah is well-loved in his hometown. I mean, Jesus said a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. But Jonah, they loved him there. Why? Because Jonah was one of those rare prophets who God gave positive messages to. Like he was like a your best life now kind of prophet. I mean, everything God, every message that God delivered through Jonah, everybody loved it because he was like, yeah, God's going to expand your territory. God's going to make Israel great and it's going to be awesome. So everybody loved what Jonah had to say. And then God says, I want you to leave your hometown and I want you to go 500 miles away to Nineveh. And the minute he said Nineveh, he's like, no, I ain't going over there. Those people hate us. Those people aren't even one of us. They're not even Jewish. Why do I need to go and preach the message of repentance and, and restoration to them? They don't deserve it. Matter of fact, when I get there, I don't even know if I'll be able to open my mouth. They're going to kill me the minute I get in there. See, because the Ninevites were terrible people. 
They were awful. I mean, think about Nazis and then like multiply it by like 50 or 60. They love to experiment in pain. They love to experiment in human destruction. And they got pleasure out of seeing suffering of their enemies. And Jonah knew the minute I go in there, they're going to make me, they're going to make me, they're going to set precedent with me. They're going to make an example out of me. I'm not going. So what's he do? He says, I get, I'm get on a boat. I'm going to sail 2,500 miles as far as I can go in the other way to Tarshish off the southern coast of Spain. He says, I'm done, God. What he's really saying is, what a lot of us say, I'm only going to follow you so long as following you brings me good things. See, Jonah had kind of turned into a little bit of a prosperity gospel kind of guy. God's great, and as long as he's great, I'm with you. But the minute he's not, I'm tucking tail and I'm running. I think that speaks a lot to our existence sometimes, doesn't it? And our version of faith if we're not careful. So in chapter 2, we see that after Jonah, God says, oh, you can run from me, but I can run faster, Jonah. So he starts this storm, and he's like this huge perfect storm, right? You know, think about that movie, The Perfect Storm, and everybody knows they're going to die on that boat if something isn't done. And so Jonah says, look, it's me. Throw me in the water, and everything will be okay. And so the sailors, after repenting of their sin and seeing the power of God and becoming true converts and believers, which, by the way, even through Jonah's disobedience, God's grace was made manifest even through our problems and through our struggles and our disobedience, he still performs for his glory in other people. And so he says, throw me in the water. And he throws them, they throw him in the water, and immediately the seas stop. And then God sends God sends this whale or this fish. I believe it was a whale because a whale is an uh, oxygen-breathing mammal, and I believe that's how Jonah survived for the three days in the belly of the whale. But uh, as, he, as, as he swallowed and taken down, we see Jonah get this personal revival, right? And that's what we see in Jonah number two where he prays, and he says, God, get me out of here, and I'll do what you want. Notice that he never says, I'm sorry. We're going to see that play out more next week. But he says, get me out of here, and I'll do what you want. And God gets him out. So last week we were left with this scene. Jonah is standing on the seashore. He's been vomited out of the ocean, out of the belly of a whale after three days, and he's standing on the seashore pulling seaweed off of his face, smelling like fish guts. And that's where we were left last week. So let's move on into chapter number three as we see the word of the Lord. And it says this in verse number one, the word of the Lord, and I'm reading from the, C, uh, from the CSB or the Christian Standard Bible this morning, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now Nineveh was an extremely great or an extremely big city. It was a three days walk to get through it. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, In four days Nineveh will be de demolished or destroyed. Then the people of Nineveh believed God and they proclaimed a fast. They dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, he took off his royal robe, he put on sackcloth, and he sat in ashes himself. Then he issued a decree in Nineveh, by order of the king and all his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each one must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. And who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. And I love what verse number 10 says. God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster that he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak this morning. I pray that you would be the preacher. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. 
the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Look at that in verse number one. And if you mark in your Bible, if you highlight, if you take notes, if you draw pictures, I don't know what it is you do to kind of call your attention to important things. Get, jo get the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time because this verse is a miracle of grace. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. First, that the word would come to anyone, that God would care to speak to us broken as we are, but he does. But then the miracle is that it came a second time. See, this, the title of the message this morning is Grace 2.0, when God gives a second chance. How many times has the word of the Lord come to you and maybe you ignored it? Or maybe you pushed it aside or you said, it's not the right time, God, but the word of the Lord came to you a second time. See, that's grace. That's mercy because he, shouldn't have, he didn't even need, and in his righteousness, we didn't even deserve for his Lord to come to us the first time, but he keeps coming to us the second time as well. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. How many second times can you recall from God? See, what I find really interesting here is that what God said the second time is exactly the same thing that he said the first time to Jonah in chapter 1. Everything he says, and everything he says in verse number two, number two and tells Jonah to go do, it's like he just hit repeat from the first time he came to him in verse number one. And that shows me this, is that we may try to blow up God's plans, but his plans will still persist. His plans, an unchanging God, will still persist with his plans for his glory. God is literally, to the letter, giving Jonah a second chance. He's giving him a do-over. He's giving him a mulligan or a new lease on life. And not only does he give Jonah a second chance, now he's going to give Nineveh a second chance. Later in the chapter, we see God tell this city, I'm going to give you a chance to get this right. See, what you've done has, has mounted my anger against you, but I'm going to give you a chance to get this right. Verse number four, we see the message is, you have 40 days to change your ways or God will destroy you. So the question I have many times is, as evil and as violent and as horrible as the people of Nineveh were, especially to God's chosen people, the nation of Israel, why would he even give them a chance to repent and change? See, I don't know. That's God's business. I don't know why he gives some people the chance to repent. I don't know why he gives us that chance. But I do know this. I think it has something to do with him being a very gracious God. I think it has something to do with that. So with this in mind, let's think about the big idea. The main thing that we need to pull from this chapter this morning is this, is that our second chance, just like Jonah's, just like Jonah's second chance became a chance for someone else to experience God's grace, we have to understand that the second chances that God gives us may just very well become someone else's first chance to experience God's grace and mercy. And so therefore, we should not take advantage, we should not squander the chances that God gives us because someone else's chance may hang in the balance. See, I don't really think that Jonah was rescued by the whale and the storm and all those instruments of grace that we've seen through Jonah 1 and 2. I don't think all that happened simply because God wanted Jonah that much. I think all of that happened for the sake of Nineveh. Because the point was God wanted Jonah to go to Nineveh because Nineveh needed God. And even though Jonah said, I don't want to go, God said, it's not about you and what you want. It's about me and what I know they need. And so I'm going to get you there. Oftentimes we look at God's grace and we look at his second chances and we thank God for his second chances. And we are so like egocentric. We think that the second chance is just only about us. But what if it's not? 
What if the second chances that God is giving me is not just about me and me being redeemed? What if my redemption is about touching somebody else's life for the glory of God? So we don't live and die unto ourselves, so God's not going to just bless us unto ourselves either. So here's the thing that we have to consider. What if the second chances that he's given us has a bigger purpose in the grand scheme of things, and the second chance he's giving you is for the purpose of someone else coming to know the grace of God? So the question this morning we want to examine quickly is, how can I turn my second chance into an instrument of grace to other people? The first thing that we see Jonah do, and the first thing that we have to do is, we have to learn to, to just let go. And we have to let go specifically of the things that are holding us back. I don't know about you, but my personality is one that I'm like a melancholic, okay? My mother-in-law has diagnosed me as a raging melancholic, which means I'm very A-type. I beat myself up when I make mistakes. I'm very perfectionistic. Anybody else with me on that? Some of you are raising your hand, and you're raising your hand because you made a mistake like back in the 70s, and you're still mad at yourself over it, right? Because that's what we will do sometimes. And you know who that is? That's not a forgiving God speaking into your soul. That's an accuser of the brethren. That's Satan. Continually trying to hold you down and make you forget the forgiveness and the grace that you sit under in Jesus Christ. Because when we experience grace, we become free to live as billboards for his glory and for his mercy. So the question is, how do I turn my second chances into instruments of God's grace? We have to learn to let go of what it is that holds us back. In verse number one, Jonah, God comes to Jonah. Verse number two, God comes to Jonah. He says, I want you to get up and I want you to go. Now, when I've read this and studied this before, I always kind of envisioned it that he was sitting on the seashore and he, God immediately says, get up and go. I don't know how much time transpires between the, 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 the vomit session and him actually getting to Jonah, or him getting to Nineveh. I don't know how much time actually transpires, but what we do know is that God comes to him the second time and says the very same thing he said the first time, get up and go. So I want you to imagine Jonah standing on this beach, and he's like bewildered by what just happened, asking himself in total shock, did all that just happen or did I have too much pepperoni on my pizza last night? I just don't know. And then God's voice comes to him and says, get up and go. He says, arise. You see that in the, in the King James Version. He says, arise or get up. Now, when you see that phrase in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, it's a signal for us to understand this is how God addressed people back in those days when a task was about to be given when God had a job for them to do. He used this phrase many, many times with many figures in the Old Testament that we look at and we celebrate because of what God did in their lives and with them. He calls them to let go. And every time he calls us to a task, he calls us to let go of something else. Because to move towards the task that God has given us means that we have to let go or unanchor ourselves from where we are sitting and the things that are holding us back. See, he called Abraham Back in the day, Abraham was really comfortable and was happy where he was at. And what did God do? He says, I want you to get up and I want you to go to a land that I will show you. And in Hebrews, we see that out of great faith, Abraham got up and he went. Not knowing where he was going, but God led him and he blessed him for his obedience. He also called Jacob. He called Jacob to get up and go to Bethel in Genesis chapter 35 and leave the place that he had settled in. He called Joshua not to go into a place, but he also called him to kind of leave behind a person. Right after Moses died, he calls Joshua. He says, get up, and I want you to go, and I want you to lead my people into the land that I have promised them. 
So Joshua had to get up. Not only did he have to get up, he had to leave behind the second man position, seize the first man position, and lead with confidence into a land that he didn't know anything about. Consider what Jonah had to let go of. A lot of those things that, we, that I just mentioned were a lot of good things, but Jonah had to let go of a lot of negative things. First of all, he had to let go of his shame and his failure. If Jonah was going to get up and go, he was going to have to let go of the shame and the failure of, being, of, of basically going up against God and losing. <laughs> kind of like what happened yesterday. Never mind, I'm going to keep that. He had, he had, to, get, he had to get over get, going against God and losing. He had shame. He had regret for what he had done. And, and I believe this with my, my whole heart, that three days in the belly of a whale doesn't, is not really good skin care, okay? Many scholars believe and attest to the fact that three days in the belly in the digestive tract of this whale would have bleached his skin, maybe even burned scars into his body. So he carried these constant reminders of his failure, which also Jacob carried around when God touched his hip and he limped his entire life when he went against God. So I think God puts those little reminders of remember when you, when you turned away from me, but also remember the grace that I, I retrieved you from that. So he had to get over the shame and the failure and the regret. And you know what? Some of you are sitting here right now, and you're just like that. Your skin may not be bleached out by spending three days in the digestive tract of a fish, but you got scars. Maybe you're wearing your scars. Maybe you're dealing with scars every day. Maybe they're mental, they're emotional, they're relationship-driven, whatever. But those scars and those things are beginning to hold you back. And shame and regret and fear are paralyzing you. And God is saying, get up and go. And you're thinking, but I can't. I'm under all of this weight. So you've got to let go of those things and get up and go in the name of Jesus. See, second chances are not about the past. Second chances have nothing to do with our past. Second chances are all about the future. This is why God gives us a second chance. He gives us a second chance because he knows that what he holds before us is greater than what we messed up behind us. That's why forgiveness is so beautiful. So he had to let go of his shame and he had to let go of his failure. He also had to let go of his own will and his fleshly desire. See, Jonah had to let go of the idea that drove him to run to Tarshish in the first place. He had to let go of the idea that he knew better than God. He had to let go of the idea that Nineveh is going to be bad news for him. He had to let go of that. See, his time in the fish didn't make the Ninevites nicer. His time in the fish didn't change the, the, the fear that he would have as he approached the gates of Nineveh. It didn't change the fact that this was going to be a dangerous task. What had changed in the belly of the fish was his perspective. He had come to understand that there is a God to fear and revere more than an enemy 500 miles away. That God, through his displays of grace, had proven himself to be more powerful, more fearful, fearful than the Ninevites. See, some of you right now, and some of us, and I, I, I'm, I've been there too many times, we can't get up and do what God calls because we haven't truly made Jesus our Lord. We're wonderful with the fact that he's our Savior. We love the fact that grace is freely given and poured out upon us. And if we would just ask in repentance, he would give us eternal life and we would have heaven as our home and we would escape hell. We love that side of the gospel. But there's another side of the gospel that says, take up your cross and follow me and surrender to me and follow me as my disciple. And that's what Jonah was struggling with. He was all about following God when he, was, when he was big man on campus back home. But the minute he called him into rough waters, he said, I don't know about this. See, because Jonah didn't struggle with the power of God. He struggled with the lordship of God. And that's what we often struggle with too. So we have to learn to let go of our own will and our own flesh and our own ways 
And because you come up with God. See, because maybe you're not willing to let go of a job that you know is hard for your family that's holding you back from serving the Lord because quite honestly, you're trusting the financial security that it provides more than trusting a God who said, I will supply all your needs according to my riches and glory. Maybe you're not willing to walk away from a toxic relationship because quite honestly, you're relying on that person for some sense of self-worth or pleasure and you think that God can't give you more than anyone else. Maybe you're holding on to an addiction because it's numbing you from a sense of reality that you don't want to face. And you don't believe that God and Jesus can change your reality and give you a new life. He's already made you a new creation that he can't give you a new perspective and a new understanding of what life really is in him. See, the first thing we have to do is we have to get up and we have to go and we have to let go of the things that are holding us back. And as we go, number two, learn that we go with God. That as we go, we go with him. See, this time Jonah finally does the right thing, doesn't he? Chapter one, God comes and says, I want you to go and I want you to preach and I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to preach. And he goes in the opposite direction. This time Jonah is like, whatever you say, I'm gonna do. I'm going wherever you tell me. Now at this point, if I were God, I'd say, okay, let's take a boat ride. <laughs> you know, just to, just to mess with him, man. Because like, I'm sure that Jonah's like, I'll go anywhere, just don't put me back on a boat, right? But no, what does God say? God says, that's fine. We had a little bit of a derailment, but we're back on track. I want you to get back to exactly what I said to do. And this time Jonah goes. Now, in our text, what you see in the original Hebrew, the word used for go carries a sense of deep urgency. It doesn't just mean go when you're ready. It doesn't mean pack and get ready to go. It doesn't mean open up a Pinterest list or a checklist and say, okay, here's what I need to go. It means go and go now. Go and go now. It's kind of like how I feel when I hear somebody say, dinner's ready. I don't care what I'm doing. I'm going and I'm going now. So that's the urgency that God says this. It's the urgency that he said in chapter one, but this time Jonah gets the urgency and he obeys it. See, there's a good application for us here is that sometimes God calls us to do something great, but it's going to require a lot of us. It's going to require time, it's going to require effort, it's going to require sacrifice, and our natural tendency is to procrastinate. To say, okay. We may not even say, you know, I'm not doing it, we'll just say, I'll get around to it a little bit later. See, we're only halfway faithful there. It doesn't mean that I'm completely in rebellion. I'm going to get to it, God. I have every intention, but I'm going to get to it on my own time. And the problem with that is our best intentions never get us to the best place. Acting in obedience to what God says gets us there. If we don't get going when God calls, we oftentimes never get started. And if we never get started, we never get accomplished what he wants to accomplish in us. So understand that when God says go, he has a purpose for that. And here's the thing. It's a beautiful parallel. Everything that God says to Jonah is a beautiful parallel to everything that Jesus said to us in the Great Commission. He said, go and preach to the Ninevites. Here's what Jesus said. Go to the nations and preach. Same command. Same command. And here's what he also says. I'll be with you. See, it's not just go. It's go with God understanding that God will be with me. See, here's what God told Jonah. Go and preach the words I give you. Jonah didn't even have to prepare the sermon. Jonah didn't even have to think about anything. God was going to take care of him. And here's what Jesus said in the Great Commission. Go and preach and teach to observe all things I've commanded you, and I will be with you to the end of the age. So when you let go and go, go with God. 
And then the third thing we have to do is we have to learn to make much of grace. In our second chance, make much of the grace of God that gave us the second chance in the first place. Don't underestimate the grace that it took for God to provide that second chance. See, yes, God is the God of the second chance, the third, the fourth, the fifth, but it doesn't make it any less miraculous that he freely gives it. It doesn't make it any less of a miracle that it's there. See, the Bible says that Jonah preached. The verb that's used for preach here in our text and the word for proclaimed in verse number four are actually translated from the same Hebrew word that literally means to call out or to announce or to proclaim with great fervor. It's also the same word that was used in chapter four to describe what the sailors did as they called out to God and they prayed and they sacrificed to him when they were in fear on the boat. It's a, it's a meaning of this preaching and this announcing is a calling out to God. See, in Jonah 1, we saw people calling out to God. Now Jonah goes in Jonah 3 and he calls out for God or about God. You see, and that's what we do as well. That's the stages of our life as a Christian. When we're not saved, we call out for God to be saved. And then after we're saved, we call out about God. And we're really good at calling out for God. But we're not so good at calling out about him, are we? See, calling out for God is all about us, but calling out about God is about other people and about him and his glory. And that's not so easy. See, even though the word indicated a different reason, the idea is the same. In each chapter of this story, so far, you have someone calling out for God. Now we're going to see people calling out about him. Because God's grace needs to be complain, co complained. God's grace needs to be proclaimed, not complained. We oftentimes pro, uh, complain about his grace too, don't we? See, we aren't told what the crew in chapter 1 did after the whole harrowing journey on the water. But I would probably guess... They didn't like just say, hey, we're never going to talk about this again. You know, that, that'll, that'll line, you know, what happens if nobody talks about Fight Club? You don't talk about it? They didn't have that. They didn't say what happened on the boat stays on the boat. I'm sure they got off that boat and started telling everybody what had happened. Matter of fact, I believe that's why Nineveh was so prepared to receive the word because I think when they got off the boat and told everybody what happened, I think word spread so fast to Nineveh about this great and powerful God that could cause the oceans to swell and could cause all of the beings within the ocean to do what he commands. That if God has his attitude turned against you, you better get right. So when Jonah comes in, they're ready. They're like, okay, we'll do whatever. You see, I think that the sailors went back and after they had called out for God, they never stopped calling out about God. They continued to preach. And Jonah, after he had called out for God in chapter 2, in chapter 3, he's ready to call out for or call out about him as well. And, and here's the message. The, the message is really interesting, isn't it? He goes in and he preaches seven words. And some of you are thinking, man, that'd be nice if you could preach a message in seven words, Pastor. I'd really appreciate that. Here's what he does. He goes in skin's all bleached out. Hopefully he took a shower by the time he got there. And he walks in and he pronounces to the city, in 40 days, God's going to destroy you. You have 40 days to get right or God's going to destroy you. Cue just as I am and an invitation. And here's the thing, the whole city responds. Some of you are sitting there real smart. Like you're thinking, see, pastor, if you preach shorter, we'd have better responses. But it's the message. And you're thinking, man, what a strange message. What if I got up one Sunday and said, you guys got to get it together or you are dead. You're thinking, man, what's wrong with you? 
So here's the thing. The whole, you know, destruction part, that doesn't sound a whole lot of grace, but the 40 days part is dripping with it. Because truth be known, because of their sin, because of their wickedness, they didn't deserve a millisecond of an opportunity to avoid his destruction. And neither do we. Neither do we. See, for Nineveh, it was 40 days. For us, it was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he gives us this life that we have, that we don't know when the end is going to come for us. But in this life, if we call upon Jesus Christ, we call out to him just like they did, he will answer and he will redeem and he will save. See, Jonah's second chance had become a first chance for Nineveh to experience the grace of God. Why did God give Nineveh a chance? I don't know, but it reminds us of what we learned last week, that when we deserve it the least and need it the most, God is there with grace. And here's what they did. Look at their reaction. And I want you to compare their reaction to ours when we come face to face with our sin. In verse number five, it says, then the people of Nineveh believed God. Now understand these people don't have steep tradition in knowing about God. They're not Jewish people. They're pagans. They don't know about God. All they know is he's the God of the people that we beat up all the time. It says, but then, after seven words of declaration from the mouth of God's prophet, they believe God for everything. They proclaimed a fast, dressed in sackcloth, greatest to the least of them. Word reached the king. He issues a decree in Nineveh by order of the king and his nobles. No person or animal or herd or flock is to taste anything at all. Why did he make the animals fast? Because food and water to animals is gasoline for transportation, and he didn't want anyone leaving the city, escaping it. He said, no, we're going to get this right. Both people and animals will be suffered in ca- covered in sackcloth and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing and who knows, maybe, maybe, just maybe, God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. Now look at God's response. God saw their actions. They turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster and he did not do it. Praise God, right? Now I want you to ask yourself, how many times has your sin caused you to go into a place where you say, where's my sackcloth? Where's the ashes? I can't eat, I can't drink until I'm right with God. We talked about repentance several weeks back with David. Where are we at with our idea of repentance? See, I think that when we magnify the grace of God, sometimes we minimize the conviction that makes grace so sweet. God's grace was sweet to Nineveh because they had come face to face with their sin. See, God's grace doesn't mean much when you don't know how much you need it. Two things as we close out this morning and as as our musicians come and get ready for our invitation. The first thing is a caution that we need to consider about God's grace, not to take advantage of it. Number one is second chances are a gift. They're not a right. They're a gift. They're not a right. There's nothing that Nineveh did to deserve God's grace. There's nothing that Jonah did to deserve God's grace. God gave it as a gift. And we have to understand that because God is gracious and he is rich in mercy, it doesn't make us entitled to it. He gives it out of his own good mercy. God wasn't obligated for the second chance for Jonah. He wasn't obligated to the second chance of Nineveh. And he's not obligated to 
a second chance with us. So we need to be very careful about taking advantage and taking grace and mercy for granted or presuming upon the grace of God. Seek to obey him first. Seek to obey him fast so that the second chance doesn't have to even become a question. The Apostle Paul advises us not to frustrate the grace of God in the New Testament, but we often do this by just going about our merry way and saying, well, you know what? God's grace is greater than my sin, so bring the sin on and I'll just plead the blood of Jesus over it and we'll go on about our merry way. That's not what discipleship truly looks like. That's not what taking up a cross looks like. When God says this is not good for you, when God says this is sin, we have to see it as sin and treat it as sin. And not just say, well, I got this grace card in my back pocket, so I'm going to enjoy this and then just plead grace over it later on. See, God's not stupid. And we're not either. So second chances are a gift and not a right. The best course, since we don't know when the second chance will be given, is to obey the first time we have the chance. And the second thing we have to understand is grace is a limited time offer. God gave Nineveh 40 days to accept his offer of grace. He gives us our lives, the span of our life. That if in this life we will choose Jesus Christ as our Savior, he will give grace. But one day it runs out. One day that chance will run out. So why not seize it now while it's here, while it's fresh, and while it's available? The Bible tells us we don't even know we've got 40 days. He says, life is like a vapor. It's here today and gone tomorrow. Some of you sitting here are watching, and I don't want to be morbid, but you may not live to come back next week. And I'm not trying to be a fear monger. I'm just trying to be factual. We don't know. Grace is a limited time offer. Have you accepted it? So as we close out this morning, there's three responses that we have to make to what we've heard this morning. First of all is if you have not done this before, today is the day. Trust Jesus as your Savior. Don't wait for a better time. Don't say, you know what, I think I want to, you know, think about it, on, on it a little bit. If the Spirit is tugging at your heart saying, you need Jesus, then receive him. He's not asking you to do anything except fall upon his grace and mercy and receive it. Repent of your sin and say, Lord, forgive me, be merciful to me, a sinner, and save me because I can't save myself and I can't run away from this grace that is pursuing me, so I surrender to you. Make me your child and I will serve you. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, it's very simple. Admit that you're a sinner. Believe that Jesus is the one who forgives us of sin. And call upon him to be your Savior. If you've never done that, today's the day. Pray and ask God something like this. If it's you, from your heart to God's right now. If you're watching, if you're in this room right now, and you know I need Jesus. I've never trusted him as my Savior. It's simple like this. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Forgive me of my sins. Wash me clean by your blood shed on the cross. I trust in you and in only you to be my Savior. I want to be yours. With everything inside of you, if you prayed and asked Jesus to be your Savior, by the authority of not my word but God's, he saved you at this very moment. Just like Jonah when he called out to God in the belly of the whale. Just like the fish, or just like the sailors when they called out to him on that boat that was about to come apart. Just like the Ninevites when they believed God and called out to him, God delivers forgiveness. He saved you. And if he saved you, <laughs> you cried out for God, now start crying out about him. Tell somebody.
The second thing that we do in response to this is if you've been running, don't take advantage of God's grace. Don't take advantage of it. Seize the second chance. Seize the second chance. If he's given you a second chance, seize it. Make the most of it because it may be somebody else's first chance. And the last thing is ask for a focus outside of yourself. This life is not about you and me. It's not. It's about other people. And most importantly, it's about him, the one who gave you the life. So seize the opportunity. Seize the second chance. And let's just live our lives for the glory of this God who pursues us with grace that is undying and unending. And in his grace, when our life ends, his grace carries us forever to him, to be with him forever in heaven. So as we stand this morning and as we pray, we open up a time of invitation. If you don't know Christ and you have questions about how to be a Christian, come today. I'll be up front. If you want to come and talk to me, there are, there are counselors at the back. If you feel more comfortable, you don't want eyes on you, that's fine. But let's do business with God today. Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section, or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 1030 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.